Welcome to Feminist Coffee Hour podcast. You can find us online at feministcoffeehour.com, on Twitter at femcoffeepod, and you can send us an email at feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Karen. And we wanted to welcome you to the show today. And we have a very special guest. Why don't you introduce yourself? My name is Robin, and I'm a nurse practitioner. I've been working in the school-based health center, and I'll explain what that is, for over 10 years now, so 11 school years. And we're here to talk about school-based health centers, the pregnancy prevention programs that we have in the school-based health centers um, here in New York City, as well as some Girls Inc. programming that's incorporated into our comprehensive adolescent pregnancy prevention program. Great. So what is a school-based health center? So a school-based health center, they're all over the country. Here in New York City, there's probably about 150 or 160 of them located with all, in all the boroughs. There are some here in Nassau County as well, but they're generally more in underserved areas. Now most of our kids have insurance, but before they were for the uninsured as well as the underinsured, they're completely free. So generally, a lot of the different hospital systems and other organizations run the school-based health center. So it's an adolescent medicine clinic located in a high school or an elementary school or a middle school. The ones that I've been working in are predominantly in high schools, also in some middle schools. What kind of services does a school-based health center provide? So basically, we provide like primary care. So... We do a ton of like sports physicals. We do a ton of vaccines. Like when anyone would bring their child to a pediatrician, asthma, sore throats, ear infections, rashes, urgent care things like when you sprain an ankle or there's injuries or we also see kind of uh, other like more injuries, but sometimes we get kids that are, you know, maybe intoxicated with alcohol or marijuana or other drugs. Another big part of what we do is depression screening and mental health services. They provide services that we have in the one I work at, it's um, their psychologists. We have a psychiatrist that comes in every couple of weeks. We have social workers, we have health educators. So we do a lot of mental health services and counseling. And as well, we do probably about half of it is primary care, the medical visits, and the other half are reproductive health visits. So we do a lot of contraceptive management, contraceptive counseling, including like pregnancy prevention services. So you're saying the reproductive health services that are uh, provided? Yeah, so we do also a lot of STD screening, STD treatments, and then as well other like adolescent health issues, so problems with missed periods, prolonged periods, all your sort of menstrual issues, and GYN exams are done in a school, as well as like dispensing birth control. So we have, and it's through a huge grant and a huge collaboration with all the school-based health centers and Columbia University and um, the public health school there, the Department of Health, the Department of Education. They actually track, you know, monitor and are doing a lot of research on it, but we, we also dispense birth control pills, Nuva rings, which are the vaginal rings, the Depo-Provera shots, the patches, the emergency contraception, and then some school-based health centers actually insert IUDs and implants and the hormonal implants, the Nexplanon, in the schools. 
the one that I work at, we refer out to like different organizations or different clinics that we collaborate with. Planned Parenthood of Brooklyn, some other centers in Queens, as well as options counseling and management. There's no abortions performed in the school, but we help make those referrals if girls, if that's their choice, if they become pregnant. Or we counsel them and get them into prenatal care and set up those appointments for them, but we don't actually provide, once when somebody's pregnant, we don't actually provide the care for them anymore. So they're either helped to schedule into prenatal care or helped to, if, if they wanted to, have an adoption kind of go along those lines. I would say in the 10 years I've been there, I don't recall one a case of a girl wanting to continue the pregnancy to continue with an adoption. So generally they either elect to terminate a pregnancy or continue their pregnancy and then we get them into the prenatal care and support them in that, in that manner. It's a really interesting mix because we also have a lot of brand new immigrants that have just come into the country so they don't have any insurance at all and maybe they have never seen a dentist or they haven't seen a doctor or they're an unaccompanied minor that's come through a refugee resettlement program. So we also have a lot of brand new immigrants. I was working in one mainly that was right on the border of Brooklyn and Queens but also another one in Queens because it's so close to JFK there's a ton of immigrants really from all over uh, the world, I mean, in the one in Brooklyn, it's mainly a lot of immigrants from the Dominican Republic, but all over the Caribbean and South America and Central America. In the one in Queens, there's a the area that that's located in, there's a ton of immigrants from Bangladesh and Pakistan and other countries in the Middle East, Albania, Syria. So we actually have a translator phone. In certain days, we're translating for Bengali, Urdu, Punjabi, like, like some other languages that I've never heard of. So it's quite like a breadth of different things that you see. Wow. That's yeah. Really interesting. And then there's a medical director who's a physician and another doctor. So basically they're adolescent medicine attending physicians. And then as nurse practitioners, we can also, we basically mainly staff the clinics. We can prescribe, we can diagnose problems, prescribe medications, and then we can refer to, you know, specialists for anything that's, you know, beyond the our capabilities or have the doctors see the the things that are also beyond our scope yeah i mean i've heard that the queens is one of the most linguistically diverse places in mm-hmm. the world and i never thought about what that actually means for service for a health yeah health for a healthcare provider actually i just learned that russian is the most commonly spoken language in queens which really surprised huh. me interesting mm-hmm. yeah in in um i think it'd be english or spanish i would think it would be spanish or when I look for through ads, I always see they're looking for nurses that speak either Mandarin, Cantonese, or Russian. Mm. But I would have thought, or Spanish. I would have mm. thought Spanish, but I wouldn't have. I didn't expect Russian. But apparently, that's the most commonly spoken language in Queens. Interesting. Yeah, something like that I didn't expect. So your program is really comprehensive. It's super comprehensive, and then a great thing about having our mental health services mm. right in the same clinic in the same school is that when I worked in we worked in a private practice on Long Island if kids there's a lot of depression there's a lot of anxiety just and also because they're coming a lot of times they're being sent here one parent is back at home in their country they're being sent to live with an aunt or an uncle or a father that they've never lived with before mm-hmm. so that adds another level of like mental health services or there are situations of different type of abuse or a parent that's potentially, you know, maybe in jail or or is sick or they have financial issues, we can actually get those kids 
when they present in the primary care setting, we do a depression screen and a mental health screen on every single patient mm-hmm. that comes into the clinic. It's pretty comprehensive. And we can say, listen, you know, I've got an excellent social workers and psychologists right here. They don't have to worry about, is it covered by my insurance? Can my mom take me after school? They can come during their lunch break or their gym class or their advisory period and get services right in the school. They're free. They're confidential. They're not going to go back up to, you know, what I always tell them, that everything is confidential and that's their law under New York State unless they're planning to either kill themselves or kill somebody else. Pretty much other than that, you know, drinking, smoking, drugs, sex is all, you know, is all confidential under our HIPAA guidelines and under New York state laws that can help them to open up to us. So, Do you find that students are referred to you or come to you because of their own knowledge of you and wanting for assistance? So we do kind of advertising, if you will, within the school. Mm -hmm. But when any student is registered in the school, they're given, in order to come to the school-based health center, they need to, the parent needs to sign a consent. Mm-hmm. that the child can be seen in a school based in the school based health center so to get any primary care services they need to be consented for by the mm-hmm. parent and most of the enrollment rate that we have is pretty good it's like 80 90% and most parents are you know even if they are they come for period cramps or a headache or you know a belly ache then they can be given that Tylenol they can be given medication otherwise without the consent we can't do that however for reproductive health services they can sign their own consent really yeah so so you then give a student an IED but not a Tylenol exactly exactly which is kind of like it's kind of weird so if they sprain their ankle and need a wrap and a Motrin I can't give that if I can't get in touch with the parent or I don't have a consent on file. Then I have to say, you know what, make an, you know, you can make an appointment, you can come back the next day. If it's an emergency, it's something different. So if it's somebody that, you know, we've even had kids stabbed in the school or they're having an asthma attack in the school. And that's one of the great things about the school-based health center is that in a regular school with your school nurse, you have an asthma attack, the nurse has to call the parent or call EMS and they're mm-hmm. shipped out us, we can see them, we can treat them, we can give them the nebs, we can give them the therapy, we can start them on the maintenance and the prevention, they can go back to class. So they, it, saves an, like it saves an emergency room visit, it saves a parent coming out of work, and then certainly if something needs further management where it's something we couldn't, you know, that they're not responding, then, you know, we obviously send kids to the emergency room for a number of different things, but a lot of things because we are, you know, licensed and the doctors are right there and the nurse practitioners are right there, we can handle it right in the school, do the preventative maintenance, the the education, and take care of it right in the school. But yeah, if we don't have the consent on file and it's a sprained ankle or a headache and they need Tylenol, they can't get it, but if, but they could get Potentially, they can get their pregnancy test, their GYN exam, the STD test, their birth control, <laughs> all, all without the consent. We were talking before the podcast, and you said a lot of people don't know about school-based health centers or what they are. Mm-hmm. And that I know from the, the popular media or the alarmist media, all I've heard about them is, oh, the nurse can give the kids condoms. But it, it sounds like it's a lot more than that. Yeah, it's a lot more than that. And I, so as a parent, too, I could see there's definitely can be a conflict in what kids can receive in the school-based health center without a parent knowing, but they can actually go in New York State and receive these services 
without parental consent in any site mm-hmm. in, in New York City, they can receive rep- reproductive health services. And the thing is, what we try to do is we encourage kind of the delay of the koidarki or the delay of the initiation of sex mm-hmm. until they're older and maybe a little more responsible. And part of our comprehensive pregnancy prevention program is that we know from experience, from data, that just giving out birth control does not prevent pregnancies. So what is um, the New York State Comprehensive Adolescent Pregnancy Prevention Program, CAP, that you were telling me about? Yeah. So I don't know if it's actually a New York, like a New York State. It's a grant program, and it's actually like a multi-pronged approach to prevent adolescent pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And so that includes things like they do peer leadership programs, they do mentoring, they do skill building, they do groups as well as one-on-one counseling. So part of it is instruction in like learning about the body, learning about the methods that are available, being able to give those methods and decrease the barriers and improve the access to birth control. But then the other part of it is talking with the kids and their evidence-based programs, including the Girls Inc. programming, that actually helps to build self-esteem, to build awareness, to talk about relationship negotiation, to talk about healthy relationships. So, for example, we know that if a 14-year-old girl is going out with a 19-year-old boy, there's a big power difference. And some of the kids, they'll tell us, oh, you know, my boyfriend's 19, he wants me to have a baby. You know, he's ready at this point in his life. Or they're maybe from a different country where the time frame of having kids is a little bit different. And so they'll say, like, oh, well, you know, back in my country, my, my cousin's, you know, 18 and she has a baby and she's just fine. But it's, it's different here. You know, everything you have to pay for. We don't have a, a huge extended family around all the time. So, and it's a balance because we also talk with a lot of kids who are maybe their mom is you know, 15, 16 years older than them. So we don't want to say, well, this is such a bad thing because, you know, you don't know exactly who's sitting in front of you all the time. You don't always have their, like, the whole history. So we don't want to say, like, oh, it's all these things are so negative because Mm -hmm. you're maybe sitting with a girl whose mom was 16 when she had her, Mm -hmm. and and she's turning out pretty good. And there's, Mm -hmm. we know that there's, you know, we... When we, we do a lot of continuing education and a, little, and a lot of training, and they talk to us also about like kind of examining your own biases mm-hmm. and also not like demonizing things that, you know, we, we all make decisions and some of us get lucky and some of us don't. <laughs> yeah, I don't um, think there's anything inherently morally wrong with having a child at a young age. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. And maybe yeah. like waiting until you're 35 to 40, there's actually a lot of risks and you know, whether they're medical risks and, uh, yeah, I mean, and it's, and it, so we say, wait, 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 but at what point, you know, really, like, so there's more, some more physical risks and risks of contracting STDs with a younger age woman, just because of their anatomy, for example, you're more likely to contract an STD. If you have one STD, you're more likely to contract another one. But maybe, you know, so far as actually having an easy pregnancy and easy birth, that's more ideal when we're in our 20s. But that's, you know, our culture and our shift mm-hmm. is to push it later and later. But it's not I- ideal, and people get insulted if their doctors say that to them. But in the reality of your physical body, it's harder on your body, and it's, you know, you have more risks when you're 35 to 40 having kids. 
Yeah. So, so it sounds like there's a lot of factors to take into account so for many, pregnancy. Yeah, there's so many yeah. factors to take into account and yeah, also where people come from. So mm-hmm. But do you think it is a good use of resources to have adolescents delay pregnancy? I think it's good because the statistics show that if they're delaying until at least graduation from high school, that they do better. We know we're not putting them back into poverty. Mm-hmm. In the school that I work in, there is a, actually even a child life program, so the pregnancy rate seems higher, but it's because some of the girls will come there because there's a daycare right in the school. Mm-hmm. Also, yeah. So in the not-too-distant past, there was a, a public health ad campaign in New York City subway systems that was photos of crying babies mm-hmm. <laughs> saying like if you wait to have me or if you choose to have me like I probably won't graduate college because like teens who have babies before a certain do you think that this is an appropriate way of getting this message across to uh, young teenagers who may or may not be weighing options of becoming or carrying a pregnancy I think there's so many things that factor into any woman's decision to have mm-hmm. a baby. And I think that's where like the comprehensive program comes in is mm-hmm. that I think probably just even having a baby, you know you don't know the reality of it until you actually have the baby. Mm-hmm. You have these visions of like what it's going to be like, but the reality is, is different whether you're 15 or 30. Mm-hmm. And so... What I've found interesting in my in my years working there is maybe whereas people that I know that will say, oh, okay, between 25 and 35, yeah, you know, maybe this wouldn't be the perfect time, but if it happens, it happens. Some of our teenagers have that same mindset. You know, well, I'm not trying to have a baby right now, but if it happens, it happens. I'm with my boyfriend. He said he'll get a job. He said he'll support me. So it's a different to try and talk someone into, well, this, this, this. We know that just scare tactics don't work, which is where I'm not a social worker and I'm not a psychologist, but that's where their skill comes in and really helping to kind of talk through all the possibilities, the realities, and what that actually might look at. But at some point you have to say, you know what, this is what my suggestion would be, but it's your, you know, this is your life, this is your decision, you're a woman with your, you know, with your own rights and mind, so I need to just support you, whereas if I was sitting across from my daughter, I would advise her not to have sex at 14 years old. And that's what I say, it's better to wait. However, if we know that, you know, I'm not with them on Saturday night, you know, so saying, you know, it's a better idea and people are going to do what they're going to do. Even when they tell me my mom is so strict, they often have their own pediatrician that they don't talk to them about it. They don't want to talk to them. So they'll come to us to have these conversations or say, miss, I've been, you know, I've been with my boyfriend for eight months now and I'm 17 and I'm graduating and I, I'm thinking about having sex. And so those are conversations we appreciate because we can they can say like okay, you know maybe my advice would be to wait. But if this is your decision, let's help you be protected. Let's help you be safe. Let's give you the information so that you know if you're not planning to get pregnant right now, I can help you do that. 
and if you're not, you know, we don't want you to get an STD. So this is the way you can talk to your boyfriend. These are the ways you can insist on condoms. These are some, they do role playing and negotiation and we have like comebacks for, you know, how to help negotiate that condom use and how to say like, let's get tested and have you, I talk to them and say like, well, you know, if you're thinking about having sex with someone, do you feel comfortable enough to say, have you had sex before? Have you had an STD before? Have you been tested before? Have you, you know, there, there are so many different things that come into play. You know, it's interesting. I thought that Karen was going to talk about the Not Me, Not Now campaign. We had those. <laughs> that was when I was in college. That was a while ago. But um, I, you're a I little think younger it, than it me. sounds like, <laughs> I think it sounds like that there's kind of two different issues here. One is to delay sexual activity and one is to delay pregnancy or intentional pregnancy. Yeah, and prevention of of disease because we also work with Mm -hmm. a lot of MSM where their risks are just inherently higher. Just for people who don't know. Uh, For men who have sex with men Mm -hmm. and other and transgender students Mm -hmm. and their risks are higher. Mm -hmm. For, For STDs. For STDs, for HIV. So... We have students also who have partners who are HIV positive, mm-hmm. and that brings mm-hmm. a whole nother layer to STD prevention too, as well as HIV prevention. Mm-hmm. And you were talking about how your job changed when Barack Obama became president because he got rid of a lot of federal funding for abstinence-only yeah. sex education. But did, did New York take that money for abstinence-only sex education? So, honestly, I started with the school-based health centers in 2006. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. When I started in 2006, they had just started probably like within the first month that I got there, I went to this conference, which was the kickoff conference of the emergency contraception, like dispensing in the schools. Mm -hmm. So my experience is different than I told you. My coworkers experience who's been there some of my coworkers have been there 20 years mm-hmm. where it was an abstinence-only program. There was no dispensing of birth control or an emergency contraception was coming into play, but it wasn't as you know widely accepted. It wasn't widely known. And when I first heard about emergency contraception as a student, I remember I was kind of, I felt uncomfortable because I was like, oh, is this, you know, are we giving an abortion pill and to young people or to anybody? Mm-hmm. And a lot of, I think there's a lot of, providers that still are they're just they're not aware but basically the emergency contraception does not cause an abortion if somebody's pregnant it doesn't do anything it's over the counter it's basically a higher dose of birth control pill um, and it delays and hopefully prevents a pregnancy but if somebody's pregnant it doesn't do anything so it sounds like you provide a lot of fun services for kids who who need them and so where does the funding come from because I was just thinking about this because mm-hmm. I know that with the Affordable Care Act, which we don't know if it's going to exist or not. Some people can stay on their parents' health plan until they're 26. But I know that a lot of insurance plans, for example, if you're on, say, your father's health insurance plan and you get pregnant, it doesn't cover your prenatal care. It would only cover the person's spouse's prenatal care or their own, not their child's prenatal care, and it wouldn't cover their grandchild at all. So. I think a lot of these kids, even if their parents had insurance, they might not have coverage. So where does where's the funding for these come from? So actually, so a lot of the kids that we see, because these are generally in underserved areas, mm-hmm. they are on some type of Medicaid or managed care plan. Mm-hmm. For people that have private insurance and don't want to put, whether they're a college student, a grad student, you know, they don't want to put 
their reproductive health care through a private insurance that maybe their parents have because you get an explanation of benefits. There's actually a program through the government called the Family Planning Benefit Program. Uh, state or federal? You know, Amory would know all these questions. And we'll I look it up. Her. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's a, called the Family Planning Benefit Program. So what they do is when they, they, you can get it at the hospital systems, we sign them up too, or they sign you up at a Planned Parenthood or another clinic, is that, you know, as long as you're, you have to be a citizen, you have to not have straight Medicaid, and I forget the other requirement, but then you can, you're essentially, it's like a reproductive health Medicaid that people are eligible for if they don't have any insurance or they have private insurance and they don't have Medicaid that will cover their reproductive health services. Other than that, all the services we provide, nobody pays a copay, no, like they're free whether you have insurance, if you, don't, if you have Medicaid, private insurance, or no insurance. We don't charge any copays, everything is free. Where the funding comes from, there are grant funds, there are state funds, and then part of it is a tax write-off for the hospital system because it's like giving back to the community. Mm-hmm. I'm not as well versed on all the funding, so the medical director knows about all of that. And then the director of the pregnancy prevention, she is, she writes the grant. She's more well versed on all that, but I'm not honestly as well versed on like all of where all the funds come from. I kind of wanted to comment again about um, the differences in the kinds of education that you were able to give, or the kinds of contraception that you were allowed to dispense. I went to a public school in the late 90s, early aughts, and everyone knew how to get condoms. Mm-hmm. So we did not have this kind of resource mm-hmm. in our in the school that I yeah. went to. Yeah. So I went to a public school. And so we were all like given condoms right away. But because the district that I'm in is conservative, we were not given health and hygiene class until the last semester of our senior year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so anyway, this is just like, like the, the bizarre... Ways that things are structured, and I think that I I probably would have really greatly appreciated having a resource to be like, what what is, what is all this for? So we were given condoms, but with no training on how to use them, yeah. when to use them, what they protect you from, you know, wow. nothing until or or like what you're preventing by using them, you know? Right. Exactly. I mean, so, I remember health class, yeah. and it was like this list of diseases, mm-hmm. and I couldn't, had no idea what they were talking about, honestly. My school, we did, well, I don't think, it was kind of sort of comprehensive. We went through all of the different methods of contraception available at the time, and they had, like, plastic models of male and female reproductive systems, and the teacher showed, like, where a male condom goes, where a female condom goes, what a diaphragm looks like, stuff wow. like that. Or, yeah. That's but so extensive you, compared you, to But mine. you couldn't get them, in, the nurse didn't give out condoms. So they showed you what they were uh-huh. and how to use them, mm-hmm. but there was, you'd have to go buy it yourself or whatever, go to yeah. a Planned Parenthood or I something. I remember a group of friends and I trying to figure out whether or not it was legal for us to buy a pack of condoms so that we could like explore them together <laughs> like so that we could like open them up as like a group project and be like what does it feel like how does it move because we were so curious and we didn't get that information until so much later yeah so I just remember being like who's the one who has to go in and buy them I wouldn't have done that in high school I yeah. would have been too embarrassed so yeah we have a, actually we have these hat boxes that they give to us which has all the different methods so uh-huh. when we're doing counseling 
we either like the one of the providers or the social worker or the health educator we take out the hat box mm-hmm. and we say this is what the pack of pills looks like this is what a ring looks like this is how you would put it in this is the shot this is how long it lasts this is how effective it is we have a lot of handouts to give to people as well as like okay this is you know this is what it looks like this is how one would put it in and then we talk about like depending on your medical contraindications or eligibility or what you're concerned about so if your mom is somebody that you know is asking you when's your period when's your period when's your period maybe the depo shot for example isn't the best method if or if you're a girl that likes to see your period every month and that's something that's concerning however you know then something that's going to change that period cycle maybe isn't your isn't the best method for you if you're concerned about gaining weight you know, maybe we wouldn't say, okay, let's start the depo, Dep- depending. I heard the weight gain is a myth, that like one-third of people gain weight, one-third of people lose weight, and one-third of people nothing have no change. So for with depo, <laughs> mm-hmm. what we generally find is, and it's also a different, in schools that I work at versus on Long Island, a lot of the girls want to gain weight. When on Long Island, they want to often prefer to lose weight. However, so what because it does in fact make you more insulin resistant, if you're overweight already, you're probably going to gain weight. If you're very thin and you want to gain weight, you're not going to gain weight. Oh, awesome. And so some girls tell me they stopped the method because they felt like they lost weight. Oh, wow. <laughs> Interesting. I wanted to ask what are the top contraception or pregnancy myths that you hear from? A lot of girls are worried about gaining weight and so for most of the methods you're generally not although you can a lot of the thing what I explained to them except for the depo is that when you think about your friends and you think about looking at them at your friends when they were 12 and 13 versus when they're 16 and 17 some girls are thinner some girls are fatter some girls are on birth control some girls are not so that's what I generally explain to them is that it's that point in your life when you're going to fill out, you're going to gain weight, you're going to get curves, whether you're on birth control or not. So a lot of times girls' bodies are changing at that point in your life. And often that's a point when girls will initiate some type of birth control. So they'll kind of associate it or blame it on the birth control. But in reality, when you look at your different friends and who's on birth control and who's not, some are going to gain weight and, and some, in fact, all will gain weight. It's just de- dependent how much. So that's one, of the, that's one of the main myths. A lot of girls worry that they won't be able to get pregnant after using birth control. And a lot of girls worry that they can't get pregnant and so they try to see if they can get pregnant because they're so worried because they've been you know, they've been so inconsistent about using condoms and they've never gotten pregnant. So they assume, oh, I must not be able to get pregnant. So then they're kind of almost actively trying to see if they can get pregnant. And then what happens with those situations? Well, some of them, they do get pregnant. (laughs) And in general, what we explain is that, you know, if you're getting a regular period every month, you're pretty young. But, you know, the tricky part now is with these apps, the fertility apps, they think, oh, you know, I can't get pregnant on these days. But what we explain to them is that when you're young, your cycle is changing. You're not always ovulating when the app says you're going to ovulate. So don't use that as a fertility monitor. We can kind of maybe predict a, a period a little more, but you can be fertile almost any time. Do you think that it might be useful if fertility monitoring apps came with a disclaimer that um, until a certain age, uh, I, they might not be as useful? I think so. Yeah, actually, I never thought about that, mm-hmm. but... 
I, I think that would probably be a good a good thing because I think people don't realize that yeah they can they may not ovulate at the same time every month when you're a teenager it's much more likely to be irregular especially those two years after menarche mm -hmm. and that sperm can in fact live inside of you for seven days mm -hmm. so you know if you're like oh I'm finishing up this period today and you're gonna ovulate in seven days from now <laughs> then you're at a, like a very fertile point when you may not otherwise think so but it's you know that's depending on their understanding I, I know that some of the apps that are intended to help you get pregnant yeah have a disclaimer on them saying that they're not intended to avoid pregnancy mm -hmm. but how many people <laughs> how many right right <laughs> right <laughs> that's interesting so one of the reasons that I got really excited about interviewing you was when uh, Elizabeth was kind of pitching the idea of interviewing you to me. She mentioned that some of sometimes you will throw like a, a graduation shower for teens. Why would you do something like that? And what is that? So actually, that's that's through Girls Inc. Yeah, that's what I was going to ah, say. What, what okay, is Girls sorry. Inc.? <laughs> so Girls Inc. is national programming. Mm -hmm. There, It's evidence-based programming to help support and empower young women to, I guess, be strong, smart, and bold, is mm -hmm. their um, saying. And so they have a lot of evidence-based programming that they put on, I guess, throughout New York City, but also throughout the country to help give skills and empower girls. So that would also like include things that, for example, interviewing and dressing properly for an interview and financial awareness and self-esteem skill building, all sorts of different things like that. So one thing that in New York City, I'm not sure about other areas of the country, that they do at the end of the year is that we say, okay, well, we throw baby showers, we throw bridal showers. For our girls that are going on to college, let's throw a college shower at the end of the year. So throughout the year, the girls that have participated in the programs, then they're eligible to apply for this college shower. And then generally part of that application is writing an essay to say what it means to be strong, smart, and bold. And they actually, at the end of the year, then the ones that are accepted, they get some, some of them get some scholarship money and others get a bunch of gifts, like a shower, for things that they could use for college. So they had to have been accepted to college, been in the programming, and then complete the essay and the requirements, and they get things like sheets and pens and pencils, sometimes a laptop, sometimes duffel bags, you know, things that when you see sometimes we meet girls that this is, they're a first generation college student. So they, they don't even, they're like, well, what do you think I need, miss, to go for the dorm? Uh, you know, I, I think I need to get a blanket. <laughs> and they're trying to figure out how they're even going to get up there on the bus and how they're going to, you know, all these things that it's much harder to navigate if you've never had somebody in your family that's gone to college before mm -hmm. or, you know, we have girls where maybe, um, you know, one parent's in jail or one parent's, you know, or they're in the foster care system or they're in the shelter system. We have kids, you know, in the, in the shelter system and all these things that play into your thoughts about pregnancy and things that could complicate things and also just achieving success in school or a relationship, there's so many different things to, to consider. That sounds fantastic. <laughs> we will link to Girls Inc. in the show notes if people want to learn more about that organization. And thank you so much, Robin, for being on the show. We really appreciate it. You know, we have a lot going on. 
People might have heard Robin's kids and pets in the background. <laughs> we thank them also for their cooperation. Yeah, they've done a really good job of staying. <laughs> this has been the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast. We tackle the political rumors from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. And you can find me online on Twitter at Miss Cherry Pie. You can find me at, at uh, Karen. <laughs> And um, I'm going to link to Girls Inc. and some information about school-based health programs if you want to learn more. The Political Flavors Feminist Coffee Hour podcast theme song is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth. You can listen to her music at soundcloud.com slash Bridget Ellsworth. And you can listen to her other songs there as well. And if you like what you hear, you can give her a like or even a follow.